Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. In 1964, the Supreme Court heard a case about the constitutionality of publishing fake news. At issue was a full-page ad that the New York Times had run back in March of 1960. The title at the top in bold letters said, Heed Their Rising Voices. And the text below described the civil rights protests in the South led by Martin Luther King Jr. and others. Here's the text of the ad. I'm just going to read it to you so you get a sense of what it said and you get a sense of the full context of the offending portion. After heed their rising voices, the ad then goes on to say, As the whole world knows by now, thousands of Southern Negro students are engaged in widespread nonviolent demonstrations in positive affirmation of the right to live in human dignity as guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. In their efforts to uphold these guarantees, they are being met by an unprecedented wave of terror by those who would deny and negate that document which the whole world looks upon as setting the pattern for modern freedom. In Orangeburg, South Carolina, when 400 students peacefully sought to buy donuts and coffee at lunch counters in the business district, they were forcibly ejected, tear-gassed, soaked to the skin in freezing weather with fire hoses, arrested en masse, and herded into an open barbed wire stockade to stand for hours in the bitter cold. In Montgomery, Alabama, after students sang My Country, Tis of Thee, on the state capitol steps, their leaders were expelled from school, and truckloads of police armed with shotguns and tear gas ringed the Alabama State College campus. When the entire student body protested the state authorities by refusing to re-register, their dining hall was padlocked in an attempt to starve them into submission. In Tallahassee, Atlanta, Nashville, Savannah, Greensboro, Memphis, Richmond, Charlotte, and a host of other cities in the South, young American teenagers in the face of the entire weight of official state apparatus and police power have boldly stepped forth as protagonists of democracy. Their courage and amazing restraint have inspired millions and given a new dignity to the cause of freedom. Small wonder that the Southern violators of the Constitution fear this new nonviolent brand of freedom fighter, even as they fear the upswelling right-to-vote movement. Small wonder that they are determined to destroy the one man who, more than any other, symbolizes the new spirit now sweeping the South, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., world-famous leader of the Montgomery bus protest. For it is his doctrine of nonviolence which has inspired and guided the students in their widening wave of sit-ins, and it is this same Dr. King who founded and is president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the organization which is spearheading the surging right-to-vote movement. Under Dr. King's direction, the Leadership Conference conducts student workshops and seminars on the philosophy and techniques of nonviolent resistance. Again and again, the Southern violators have answered Dr. King's peaceful protests with intimidation and violence. They have bombed his home, almost killing his wife and child. They have assaulted his person. They have arrested him seven times for speeding, loitering, and similar offenses. And now they have charged him with perjury, under which they could imprison him for ten years. Obviously, their real purpose is to remove him physically as the leader to whom the students and millions of others look for guidance and support and thereby to intimidate all leaders who may rise in the South. Their strategy is to behead this affirmative movement and thus to demoralize Negro Americans and weaken their will to struggle. 
The defense of Martin Luther King, spiritual leader of the student sit-in movement, clearly, therefore, is an integral part of the total struggle for freedom in the South. Decent-minded Americans cannot help but applaud the creative daring of the students and the quiet heroism of Dr. King. But this is one of those moments in the stormy history of freedom when men and women of goodwill must do more than applaud the rising to glory of others. The America whose good name hangs in the balance before a watchful world. The America whose heritage of liberty these Southern upholders of the Constitution are defending is our America as well as theirs. We must heed their rising voices. Yes, we must add our own. We must extend ourselves above and beyond moral support and render the material help so urgently needed by those who are taking the risks, facing jail, and even death in a glorious reaffirmation of our Constitution and its Bill of Rights. We urge you to join hands with our fellow Americans in the South by supporting, with your dollars, this combined appeal for all three needs, the defense of Martin Luther King, the support of the embattled students, and the struggle for the right to vote. Your help is urgently needed now. And then you have several signatures from those who are signing the letter and then an appeal for donations. And most of the things that are written in that statement are true. The problem was that the statement also contained some small errors of fact when it came to what happened in Montgomery, Alabama. The statement said King had been arrested seven times. In reality, he'd only been arrested four times. It said that police had ringed the Alabama State College campus, but they actually didn't ring the campus. They had been deployed nearby. There was also some dispute about whether the students actually sang My Country, Tis of Thee, or whether it was some other song that they had been singing. Although he wasn't named in the ad, the Montgomery Police Commissioner, Lester Sullivan, took offense to the ad and to how it described the police actions in Montgomery. Sullivan then asked for a retraction from the New York Times, and when the New York Times refused, he sued under Alabama law. He said the New York Times had defamed him by publishing false statements about him, or at least false implications about him because of his role as police commissioner. He brought a libel action against the New York Times, and an Alabama court then awarded him $500,000 in punitive damages. A lot of money today and a lot more money back then. The constitutional question here is whether the First Amendment protects the right of the New York Times to publish these statements, and by extension prevents the state from awarding punitive damages for libel. Let's back up and think about this for a minute. Recall in the Chaplinsky case that Justice Murphy gave a list of categories of speech that were never thought to be protected under the First Amendment. These included the lewd, the obscene, the profane, the libelous, and personal epithets and threats, what the court here called fighting words. And the court was saying that there's no First Amendment right to publish false statements about somebody in a way that damages their reputation, and that's why they include libelous in this list of categories of disfavored speech. And this makes some sense. Spreading lies and falsehoods about someone in a way that damages their reputation does real harm to that person. And the way we protect against that from happening is by allowing someone to sue for damages and to seek compensation from that other person or organization for the harm they've done by defaming them. On the other hand, isn't it essential in a republic that the people can criticize their public officials without fear of being censored? And if we let public officials collect damages every time some technical falsehood is printed about them, won't this have a chilling effect on public discourse and on the press? That's really what's at stake in this case, and it's a landmark case that confronts this issue, gives a solution that remains with us today. The requirement that the court comes up with is that the public official or the public figure suing for libel has to show that the statement that someone printed about them was not just false, 
but knowingly false. And if not known to be false, then at least published with a reckless disregard for whether it's false or not, a reckless disregard for the truth, and that it's motivated by actual malice against that other person. In other words, you need to be able to show that the person printed something about you maliciously with the intention of hurting you and that what they printed was both demonstrably false and that they knew or should have known that it was false. So this is a high bar for libel actions and it gives great protection to the freedom of the press. And it has consequences for other areas of law as well, notably about the tort of intentional infliction of emotional distress. In some ways, this is similar to libel. If someone intentionally inflicts emotional distress by their actions, you can bring suit against that person. If they're found liable, then a court might require that they pay some damages. This is what happened in a case involving Westboro Baptist Church back in 2011. Listen here to Chief Justice Roberts describe both the facts of the case and the court's reasoning and its decision in the case. The members of the Westboro Baptist Church believe that God hates and punishes the United States for among other things, its tolerance of homosexuality, particularly in America's military. The Church has chosen to communicate these views by picketing at military funerals and has frequently done so for the past 20 years. Fred Phelps, who founded the Church, and six Westboro Baptist parishioners, all of whom happen to be related to Phelps, traveled to Maryland to picket the funeral of Marine Lance Corporal Matthew Snyder, who was killed in Iraq in the line of duty. The picketing took place on public land approximately 1,000 feet from the Catholic Church where the funeral was held. The signs carried by the parishioners stated, for example, thank God for dead soldiers, fags doom nations, thank God for 9-11, America is doomed, Pope in hell, and God hates you. The picketers displayed their signs for about 30 minutes before the funeral began. Matthew Snyder's father, the petitioner here, saw the tops of the particular, particular picketer signs when driving to the funeral, but did not learn what was written on the signs until watching a news broadcast later that night. Mr. Snyder sued Phillips, two of his daughters who had participated in the picketing, and the Westboro Baptist Church for intentional infliction of emotional distress, a tort under state law. A jury held Westboro liable for several million dollars in compensatory and punitive damages. The jury here was instructed that it could hold Westboro liable for intentional infliction of emotional distress based on a finding that Westboro's conduct was, quote, outrageous, end quote. But in a case such as this, there is a real danger that a jury would punish Westboro simply because the jury disagreed with Westboro's controversial but peacefully expressed views on matters of public concern. As we have made clear in our precedents, if there is a bedrock principle underlying the First Amendment, it is that the government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because society finds the idea itself offensive or disagreeable." End quote. The jury verdict imposing tort liability on Westboro for intentional infliction of emotional distress must be set aside. Our holding today is narrow. We are required in First Amendment cases to carefully review the record, and the reach of our opinion here is limited by the particular facts before us. Westboro believes that America is morally flawed. Many Americans might feel the same about Westboro. Westboro's funeral picketing is certainly hurtful, 
and its contribution to public discourse may be negligible. But Westboro addressed matters of public import on public property in a peaceful manner in full compliance with the guidance of local officials. The speech was indeed planned to coincide with Matthew Snyder's funeral, but did not itself disrupt that funeral, and Westboro's choice to conduct its picketing at that time and place did not alter the nature of its speech. Speech is powerful. It can stir people to action, move them to tears of both joy and sorrow, and, as it did here, inflict great pain. On the facts before us, we cannot react to that pain by punishing the speaker. As a nation, we have chosen a different course to protect even hurtful speech on public issues to ensure that we do not stifle public debate. That choice requires that we shield Westboro from tort liability for its picketing in this case. Justice Alito was the lone dissenter in the Snyder versus Phelps case. He objected that Matthew Snyder was not a public figure that this was a malevolent verbal attack and that the court erred in holding that the First Amendment protected respondents' right to brutalize Mr. Snyder, as Alito characterized it. Alito's opinion was perhaps the closest thing that we've seen to Justice Murphy's in Chaplinsky, advocating for the recognition of limits on First Amendment freedoms derived from the purpose for which the First Amendment exists in the first place. But eight other members of the court disagreed with Alito, They sided with Westboro Baptist Church, recognizing the trade-offs involved in protecting speech in this way, but nonetheless giving maximum protection to the speaker. But as Roberts said in his opinion announcement, the holding was narrow. There are always new cases and new issues that require nuance. And it remains true that under the court's precedence, the First Amendment still does not protect your right to say anything at any time and in any manner you choose. So next week, we'll continue this exploration with some challenging questions about the First Amendment and its reach. What about flag burning, hate speech, obscenity, and lies?